We've got questions on Walt Disney, the Byzantine Rite, and monarchist friendly TV shows. And what would Charles do if he was elected Pope? Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu, now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel, talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. I'm Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with a phalaristic, Charles Kulo. Phalaristic? You mean like the study of orders and decorations and stuff? Yeah. You're into all that, so, aren't you? Yeah, but I mean, so, so you're basically saying like, I've got the Order of the Garter and the Order of Malta, the Order of the Holy Sepulchre. I'm, I'm basically dripping with decorations, is what you're saying. Yeah. You're all about that. I may be interested in it, but I'm not dripping with them. Besides which, having spent most of my life in Southern California, the magic phrase, white tie and decorations, you know what that means in L.A.? White tie and decorations? When you see that on an invitation, what do you think it means? I've never seen that on the invitation, so... Uh, white tie and decorations, you, I would assume, on an invitation means dress, right? No, well, yeah, but what what kind of dress? What do you think it would mean? Uh, what would you be wearing? I would say white tie with tails. Yes, that's half of it. But what are <laughs> okay. the decorations? Uh, tails and um, you had a certain thing on on your shoes that um, long yeah, time ago. Not... You don't do it anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah, spats, but spats. no, spats aren't aren't no. Spats aren't decorations. No. Okay, what are what are the decorations? Decorations are any orders of knighthood or medals or anything like that you've got. So white tie and decorations on the invitation means you should wear white tie and tails with whatever decorations you're entitled to wear, be they medals or stars or breast patches. So where would where would dress code like that be? I, I'm assuming that's military, right? Any formal ball or nighttime event. I was just at a ball in Vienna, which was white tie, and uh, I saw people wearing decorations. And you often see that when people wear white tie, they'll wear their whatever medals they're entitled to. But in LA. If you see white tie and decorations on an invitation, most people think it means a black shirt, long white tie, and Christmas tinsel and balls and stuff hanging from everything. I see. Okay. Fair. That's the LA idea for white tie and decorations. Christmas lights and ornaments and tinsel. Basically, you should come as a walking Christmas tree is the LA idea. Uh, I agree. I agree. Well, huh. well, but why do you have to be derogatory? Why do you, why do you have to rub that in? Hmm? Why, what's derogatory about it? I I feel like you're you're being self-loathing. I'm not self-loathing. I would never wear something that ridiculous. But it's very very common to do that kind of thing in Los Angeles. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't think you should hold it against your fellow Angelinos that they have a certain lack of understanding of these things. I think, frankly, I think you're being a little snobbish toward them. That's you. Me? Yeah. 
Oh, I see. Shift the focus. Playing the victim. Very nice. Smoothly done. <laughs> so basically, you're turning it all on me now, as though it were my fault somehow. No, I'm not even turning it. It's just you. I didn't turn anything. <laughs> I just illustrated what you're doing. It's got nothing to do with me. You were born in L.A. I wasn't. It's up to you to maintain the high standards of Los Angeles, not me. That doesn't even make I just sense. Came what, in... Only people who are born here have or that's their job to have standards. Anybody that wasn't born here doesn't need to do anything. Then the <laughs> the much. Spanish who, the Spanish who first came here could have totally uh, slacked off. Then, according to let, you, let me let me tell you something. I can afford to be blase. I just came along for the ride when uh, the Franchini family moved in. I uh, I would have been perfectly happy to be left alone to work with your cousins, but no. You know, I I think it'd be I think it'd be useful. You know, starting the business up out there, bring them along. And I didn't get much to say about it. Just you know, the kid's smart. Bring him. I like that. And I'm not I, I'm not upset. I'm not I'm not resentful. Clearly. But I was I was just as happy running numbers on the streets of Brooklyn and Queens as you know. I mean, not running numbers because I mean. <sighs> I was just as happy doing boyhood chores for the family back home as I was when we got out. To, you know what? I don't want to talk about this anymore. Neither do I. Let's move along. Move along. We? Move along. Nothing to see here. <laughs> no, but seriously, folks, the um, there is a lot coming up. As you know, this is the month of March that we're facing this week. And March the 1st is, you guessed it, the Feast of St. David of Wales. And this is a shout-out to our friends at the Oratory of Cardiff in the Welsh Principality's capital. The Principality of Wales, ladies and gentlemen. Cardiff is the capital, and there you will find St. Albans on the Moor, which is uh, the Church of the Oratory in Cardiff. And they have one of the uh, three shrines of St. Alban, the proto-martyr of Britain. So if you find yourself anywhere near Cardiff and want to venerate your island's proto-martyr and you're nowhere near St. Albans, which is in England, uh, have at it. And not only that, not only that, very close to Cardiff is a town called Calian. And Calian is an important place because it's associated with the Arthurian legend. Supposedly, the uh, the Roman amphitheater was one of the inspirations for the round table. It's mentioned in all the Arthurian stories, and no less than Arthur Mackin himself was a native of the place. So, go see Cardiff, go see Calian. But wait, there's more. I knew you'd want to know that. I think on the 6th, is it? Uh, is the Feast of, or maybe it's the 5th. Anyway, whatever it is, uh, look it up. The Feast of St. Piran, P-I-R-A-N, the patron saint of Cornwall, or South Wales, if you will, uh, which is that little duchy uh, west of the River Tamar. And it's another Celtic country, like Ireland, Scotland, the Isle of Man, and Brittany. Wales and Cornwall being the six Celtic nations that survive. Um, and then, of course, on March 17th, the St. Patrick's Day. 
and not just St. Patrick's Day, but also the Feast of St. Joseph of Arimathea, who brought either or both the grail and the relic of the precious blood to Glastonbury, and whose staff stuck in the earth, flowered, and gave us the Glastonbury thorn, which to this day blooms at Christmas, which is kind of a weird thing to do, but it does it anyway and doesn't really care too much what you or I think about it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So for all you Celts out there, be ye Irish, Scots, Manx, Cornish, Welsh, or Breton, this is a big month for you. All right. Uh, very good. Um, anything else before we go to State of the Week? Oof, oof, oof. Anything else? Anything else? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Mustn't forget. Today in real time is Sunday, the first Sunday in Lent, uh, and the Sunday of Orthodoxy, which in the Byzantine Rite, both Catholic and Orthodox, commemorates the Council of Nicaea, Second Nicaea, 787, I think, um, smashing the iconoclastic heresy, upholding the use of images. And it's it's a wonderful a wonderful feast. They um, after the liturgy, there's a big procession with icons, and then a ritual condemnation of heresy, and a various heresies, and then a lauding of various right thinking and right believing people, from fathers of the church and emperors, all the way down to soldiers and normal people. That's beautiful. Why don't we do that more often? Well, they only do it once a year, but this is this is the time to do it. Who's they? They are both Byzantine Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. Hmm. Wow, great. Um, okay. Um, All right. You got a state of the week for me? Hysteria, uh, confusion. Uh, wait, one more thing. Uh, just a, as a reminder, um, when is your Empress Zeta thing? In May. That's oh, in a May. very good question. May. May. That's not going to be uh, during the the um, the coronation, is it? You're not are you, you gonna know, be out I, here during I hope the coronation? Not. I'm not no, I'm not going to the coronation. It'd be too much of a uh, of a mob scene. No, I meant here. I meant like in the US. Like I think it's I think you told me like May sixth. Well, let me see. Um hold on just a minute. Clear Creek Zeta. All right. Uh, Empress Zeta Cause. The American Foundation. This is uh, EmpressZetaCause.com. The 2023 Empress Zeta uh, Symposium. It will be um, Saturday, May 13th. At uh, Our Lady of Clear Creek Abbey. Includes a full catered meal, lunch. Uh, very good. So that it's May 13th. Now, the coronation. It's May 6th. That's a pre, it's a, the, Saturday, uh, the, the Saturday prior. Saturday before. All right. The coronation of Charles III. Out of curiosity, I wonder if they have a website up for it yet. Uh, a website dedicated to that? Yeah, of course. 
I mean, they have websites dedicated to inaugurations, and we get those every bloody four years, don't we? Wow. Nope. Doesn't look like it. Yeah. Um, what we can do, though, is go to the royal family's website and see if they've got anything interesting about it. It'll be at Westminster Abbey, of course, the way they all are. Uh, the Coronation Weekend. Let's see. Feature. Oh, there's a, there is a section on the Coronation. Yay. The Coronation of the King and the Queen Consort. The Coronation website. Visit. Okay, I'm doing that. Coronation.gov.uk. All right. People across the country of the Commonwealth are invited to celebrate the coronation of His Majesty the King and Her Majesty the Queen Consort over a weekend of special events on 68 May. What is the coronation? How can I get involved? Send money. No, it doesn't say that. Prepare for the coronation. Latest updates, the music, uh, coronation emblem now available, concert at Windsor Castle, coronation weekend plans announced. Oh, this is quite exciting stuff. I know. Why should we care? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. Bank holiday proclaimed in honor of the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. Well, that is instering. Hmm. So there is a website for the coronation. All right. And in case you're wondering, ladies and gentlemen, why a Catholic such as myself would care tuppence about it, it's very simple. With the exception of the oath that will be taking to uphold the Protestant religion as by law established, uh, everything about the coronation is a holdover from medieval times, except that it's in English. So if you want to know how kings were crowned in Catholic countries, tune in and you will see how it was done. Ooh. All right. Uh, state of the week. Confusion. State of the week is going to be Colorado. Woof, woof. Colorado. Well, 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 well. What can I tell you about Colorado? Well, several things. Let's pretend that you're coming into Colorado from the south, from New Mexico. Okay. So you cross Raton Pass, and voila, you're in Colorado. You're going to see some interesting, uh, very Hispanic towns, Walsenburg and Trinidad and so on, settled by Hispanos from New Mexico. And there's a real, real crossover from that. You'll hit Colorado Springs, and you'll see the Air Force Academy, which is, uh, of all the three service academies, the Air Force Academy is the most bizarre-looking. But it is worth seeing. Then you're going to go up into the Rockies. And there's a lot to see. When you come to Denver, you want to eat at the at Brown's Palace Hotel. The Palace Arms. Uh, great place to eat. And the hotel is very historic, very beautiful. I would recommend also uh, the Denver Art Museum. Our cathedral in Denver is, is quite lovely. Uh, there's a lot to see in the Mile High City, as they call it. 
Boulder, Colorado, is the site of the University of Colorado, and it's a lot higher than Denver, and I'm not talking about elevation. It's always had a reputation since my day of being very countercultural. And since I know your affection for the 60s, it's always great to see a place where the spirit of the 60s is still very much alive. Okay. Rocky Mountain National Park, I think, is in Colorado and worth seeing. And um, Fort Carson, Colorado, I've been to. As I recall, they had rather a pretty church there. I've only been there the once, and that was a good almost 40 years ago. Um, let's see, is there anything else I could mention about Colorado? That's pretty much it. The Grand Tetons, I guess. If they're, are they in Colorado, the Grand Tetons? They're in the, no, they're in Wyoming, I think. Anyway, it's um, it's about all I can say about Colorado, um, except that my great grandfather is buried in Denver. Hmm, that's interesting. Oh, you can go and gawk at his grave. Hmm. Samuel P. Arnold, if you want to look him up in, uh, if you want to look him up in, uh, find a grave. Right. Um, all right, let's move on to the memes of production. Nationalize the memes of production. For the common good. All right. Notice uh, you're a little restrained, ladies and gentlemen, because it's Lent. <laughs> Everything has a more somber tone right now. All right. We've got a proper meme uh, today from Noble Cobra. I'm going to put it up on the screen for everyone to enjoy. Uh, Emperor Palpatine says, Dark academia is a pathway <laughs> to many practices some consider to be natural. <laughs> that's perfect which is one of the very very few crimes today you know it, it's it's and, and you know ladies uh, and gentlemen it, it it i realized that for the past five years i've actually been living in dark academia <laughs> going to school at a castle you know my joke was always it's theology's answer to hogwarts um and of course my manner of dress has always been apparently dark academic. So when you see me prowling the halls uh, here. That's, that's it. You're the embodiment. I'm living, <laughs> I'm living the dream, gang. Living the dream. I just love that 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 was that's entirely who you are and you are being that and you are that completely independently and oblivious to yeah. it being a thing. It grew up around me without my knowing. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like a fossil that's, you know, been encased in a rock. You know, you crack open the rock and there's still the imprint around you. <laughs> so that's that's dark academia. It's the imprint around me. All right. Um, we've got a comment from Andrew from New Jersey who says, I upped my tithe for Lent. Uh, meaning uh, for 
uh, Tumblr House Patreon. Uh, only one company I ever worked for where you have to pay the company for the privilege of working in the mailroom. Well, now, now see, see, all right, Andrew, most companies you've got to pay the union for the privilege of working in the mailroom. Here, we cut out the middleman. There's no, you know, there's there's absolutely no extra parasites or hangers-on to suck your money from you. Nope. It goes straight to the top. Absolutely. That's... Yeah, no, this, it goes straight this... to the top, 100%. Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll stick with that. I, <laughs> I was going to say, there seems to be a little, something a little off with that narrative, but I, I, I'm just going to take it as red and... I'm gonna leave it alone. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna complain. Uh so Andrew from New Jersey. Uh, you know, I mean, we have a lot of differences of opinion on New Jersey and other things. But I tell you, he really is showing what a great person he is by with his donation. I mean, oh, just a corporal work of mercy to support the needy. Um, you know, the top floor executives. You know, it's it's <laughs> so been needy. tough. It's been tough. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, as customary for Lent, you know, I used to have surf and turf, you know, before Lent, but obviously now it's just surf, right? So, surf and surf. Surf and surf. So I'm giving it up. Um, so, and obviously, um, what is it? Um, I forgot what drink it is. Is it Louis the 15th? Louis the 16th? Louis the 13th. Louis the 13th, excuse me. So giving up Louis the Thirteenth, you know, after dinner kind of stuff, little, little sweet stuff, but that's very touching. Yeah, yeah, right here. So, so but anyhow, if you want to become a patron, uh, you can do so for as low as five dollars a month. Um, get access to the pre-show, uh, get early access, a uh, bunch of other benefits. Send questions in if you have questions in. You're gonna want to become a patron. So. All right, uh, sh- shameless plug checked off. Um, all right. Paramus Mall? Uh, no. All right. Uh, Wurlitzer Organ Store. What did you say? I said Wurlitzer Organ Store. I don't know what that means. It's Well, you know what Wurlitzer Organs are. It's a type of the organ. Wurlitz- yeah, the Wurlitzer Company makes organs. And they had a store. In the Paramus Mall. And one of the great thrills was to go into the Paramus Mall and hear people trying out the world's organs. Sometimes they knew what they were doing. It sounded good. Amazing. What have you got against the world's organ store in the Paramus Mall? I have nothing against it. I'm simply ignorant. What do you have Not against anymore. ignorance? <laughs> well, <laughs> one thing, I resent being ruled by people who are ignorant in church and state. It's a little annoying, and I'm tired of it. It's been the case my entire life, and I'm I'm I want it to end. Wow! Suddenly, we're not so accepting now, are we? Uh, not of our masters. No, 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 no. Our masters they they don't they don't get a uh, they don't get. Well, you know, you you said it once best yourself. Ah, uh, yes. They don't have the right to be that stupid. They just don't. Yeah. You said it, and I concord. Concur. Concur. They, they should have to pass a test or something. There should be a very like, very remedial spelling, you know, your times tables. 
I feel like it, there needs to be some of that there, you know? I yeah, know. there should be. I mean, there should be a qualifications test for public office. You've got to be able to count above seven. Yeah. And I don't want to make it too hard for them. <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, questions. Tampa Tobacconist. Tampa Tobacconist is really on a roll here. So, te- he says, uh, a conclave is called. Day after day, the Cardinals meet. And day after day, black smoke emerges from the Sistine Chapel chimney. Finally, the Cardinals reach a compromise. White smoke is seen at last. But then something unusual happens. The Camerlengo is dispatched to Austria to inform Sir Charles that he is the compromise candidate. But wait, there's more. The Cardinals have decreed that Pope Charles can only reign for one week. Putting aside any canonical problems with the scenario, what would Charles do? There might be a few. Just a few. What would Charles do with his seven-day reign as Pope? What would he focus on? Would he bring about a sweeping agenda of change? Or would he focus on pet projects like handing out indulgences to his loyal off-the-menu patrons to say nothing of his friends over at Big Almond? Wow. Well, of course, part of the problem with having only a week in the papacy is that it limits what I can do that would be of use in terms of long range. So I would have to do stuff that would have immediate significance straight away. So first and foremost, I would void all of the uh, legislation about the Latin mass since and including Traditionis Custodes. Poof. You can do that with a stroke of a pen. You bet. Like that. It, um, you, you said it wrong, too. It's trash can custodians, by the way. Trash can custodians, indeed. Yeah. Uh, I would immediately dismiss those uh, bishops who have been too assiduous in applying it. Yeah, I mean you, Bishop Declan of Clifton, and I mean you, Cardinal Gregory of Washington, D.C., and several other people of your kind. Out on your ear, you'd be, you'd be in a monastery together. Um a monastery of nuns, of you know, most reformed and annoying imaginable. In Siberia. No, probably Montecito, California. I'd stick him in with the IHMs. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the nicest, most ritzy. <laughs> wow. Okay. So anyway, uh, so once they were out of the picture, um, I would also prescribe that the Sarum Rite is an alternative for the ordinariates. Mm. Uh, I would um, um, excommunicate uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Bell Book and Candle, and Boris Johnson. Don't want to leave him out. And because I, I wouldn't have the time to uh, negotiate a new concordat with Germany. So I would simply declare that uh, as far as the Holy See is concerned, opting out of the church tax in Germany does not end your membership in the Catholic Church. And I would um, I would task 
several orders with um, sending priests to Germany to attend to the faithful who didn't want to pay the church tax. Okay. I'd break the agreement with China as well. Stroke of the pen. Are you going to reform um, um, Grinder at all? Well, there's that. All the Grinder accounts people would have to go to Montecito with the bishops. Yeah. I'm sure I could find out from uh, whatever that group was that found out. I'm sure I could find out uh, who had the grinder accounts. So you just <laughs> hi, hi, Cardinal Mumu. Yes, yeah. This is the Pope. You're out of a job, pal. Off to Montecito for you. Wow. So you're banishing everyone to Montecito. <laughs> well, I think the IHGM nuns could look after them the way they looked after my brother and me. Wow. Right? Um, is that it? I feel like there's so much to do, you know? There's so much to do, but I only have a week. And the problem is so much of what I would want to do would take a while to accomplish. All right, well, let's just explore that. Even though you can't do that, like, let, let, what what would you want to do that one week would be too limiting? Well, I mean, there's a slew of canonizations I'd like to do. I mean, I would canonize uh, Kaiser Karl straight away because he's got his second miracle. Oh. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd uh, reopen and push or open for the first time. Uh, Louis XVI, uh, Queen Catherine of Aragon, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, uh, Henry VI, James II, all of these uh, dormant causes I would uh, open up again. Um, but again, there's only so much time and you couldn't see them through. That's the problem with this stuff. You know, hmm. you could um, I'd have them look at Guy de Fongelon again, and uh, I'd be out of five Father Deon, and I would be out of five Queen Isabel of Spain, mm. because those beatifications were just about to be done when the opinions of outsiders uh, derailed them. Oh, and and uh, Sheen, of course. Mm. Did you say Columbus? Reopen his cause, sure. Yeah, yeah. Open that up. Cool. Sounds good. I mean, I'd 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 want to have a coronation, but the problem is, it would take weeks to prepare for one. Yeah. And I would I know it'd be around for a week anyway, so it hardly seems worth the time, effort, and expense. Uh, I'd be too busy pushing this other stuff through. Hmm. Okay. All right. Very good. Um, pause for channel identification. Off the menu is now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be. At CrusadeChannel.com. 
Right. Um. Yeah. You're raising your hand. Yes. You. No. This is this is these are the pause for station identification. Oh. Okay. You can unpause now. We've hit the play button. No. 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 These are pause. Two pause. Oh. 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 I see. What is the difference between a comma and a cat's fingernail? What? One are claws at the end of a pause. The other is a pause at the end of a clause. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. What? <laughs> wow. Was that bad? No, I mean, you, you that joke really had to work hard. That, that was good. Okay. All right. All right. Um, what else we got? All right. We've got um question from Don from Florida. Okay. Don says, uh, who is the greatest French composer of all time? And besides not being Italian, why would he not be in a top ten of Italian composers? <laughs> Charles Gounod. Uh, because he doesn't uh, compose in the Italian style. Uh, wow, that's that's bitter. That's just are you bitter? Are you are you mad, bro? No, he's he's never he's never done anything remotely like la 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 which is one of the one of the greatest compositions ever to come out of Italy. And you know another one that that one of the the most famous I forget if it was Verdi who did this. A Rapagnini? I forget, but it goes uh, a beautiful tune. When the mood hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When you're starting to drool just like pasta fajoule, you're in love. <laughs> that was, I forget it though. It, it wasn't Verdi, was it? Who did that? Rapagnini? Paganini, Giannini, Mussolini. <laughs> I forget. It was one of those guys, I think, maybe. All right. You're, Moving why, on. Why, you're, you're looking at me. Do you know who really hated that song was your brother? Yeah? You don't say. Yeah. He thought it was demeaning to the Italian nationality. But to show him it wasn't, I sang it to him at Columbus Day one year, and he, what? No, I wanted to show it wasn't demeaning, so I sang it on a day sacred to the Italian American. <laughs> I'm great. Thanks for helping again. Uh, <laughs> I do my I, best. No, yeah. All, All right. right. It's called reaching out. <laughs> And by the way, the man who made it famous, Dean Martin, was a certified Italian. He spoke Italian. And as he put it so very, very clearly, excuse me, but you see, back in old Napoli, that's amore. <sighs> I, I, okay. Are, 
We're moving on to Don, uh, next question from Don. <laughs> I am done. You've okay. sufficiently annoyed me. You should be pleased. You should be well pleased. <laughs> annoyed? You know, I try to help reinforce your security in your ethnicity and your culture. And what do I get? You get annoyed. Were you really trying to do that, though? Oh, sure. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Could be true. (laughs) In the immortal words of Bill Murray, when he played that uh, ineffable, uh, what's his name? Sure. Yeah. On Ed Wood. On Ed Wood. Yeah. I can't think of Oh, Bunny Breckenridge. That Mm. was it. He played Bunny Breckenridge. He goes, sure. Are you willing to accept Christ the Savior and renounce uh, Satan? Sure. (sighs) He sounded... Sincere, sort of. Sort of. All right. In reading Dom Guéranger's liturgical year, I came across the lost octave of St. John the Apostle. Why did the church do away with it, and what are some of the cultural traditions behind the octave? Well, St. John the Apostle, of course, um, it wasn't just St. John. Uh, St. Stephen, St. John, and the Holy Innocents each had octaves. And they were done away with by Pius XII in the 50s, as was the octave of the Epiphany, the octave of Corpus Christi, the octave of the Assumption. You see, it's kind of like this. Um, In the 50s, there was a man named uh, Annabale Bonini, who convinced Pius XII that he really needed to update liturgy and that he, Bonini, was the man to do it. Now, the irony here is that uh, Pius XII wrote an excellent encyclical on liturgy called Mediator Dei, in which he condemned all sorts of nonsense which would become standard today. But he was also the one who put Bonini in charge of liturgy. And one of the first things Bonini did was to get rid of a bunch of the octaves. Now, you might ask, why do we have octaves? Well, we have octaves because they give a certain solemnity to major feasts. And see, the other thing that was interesting about those three octaves after Christmas is that they sort of ran into each other, you see, into following feasts. So, uh, St. Stephen's Day, the day after Christmas, that's got eight days of an active that follow. St. John's Day is the second day of that active. Holy Innocence is the third day. So then you've got St. John's Day, the eight days that follow, and Holy Innocence is the second day of the active of St. John. Hmm. You see? Yeah. And they all sort of rolled into each other, and what was really observed a week later were the active days of those feasts. So uh, January 2nd was the active of St. Stephen. January 3rd was the active of St. John. January 4th was the active of the Holy Innocents. Uh, And it just kept them in mind liturgically uh, and pointed out the importance of uh, the two saints and the horde of saints in terms of the Holy Innocents with the Annunciation, with Epiphany, Corpus Christi, it was not an accident that the Feast of the Baptism of our Lord occurred on the um, occurred on the octave of the Epiphany. 
And the Epiphany was, you know, a major feast. Uh, the Octave of Pentecost was was another thing that Pius XII got rid of, uh, or rather Bonini using Pius XII's authority got rid of, were an awful lot of the special offices for um, vigils. Hmm. And traditionally, these have been a big, big thing in the church: vigils of, of feasts of holy, of uh, holy feasts of obligation. Holy, yeah, I can do this. Feasts of holy obligation, and as we know, he then uh, did a job on Holy Week. And by the time Pius XII was gone, he really had done a a major a major thing. So John the Twenty Third comes along. And he convinces, uh, Benini convinces John that it's time to start tinkering with the calendar. And he convinces John to get rid of holidays he considers redundant. Hmm. So there are two feasts of the Holy Cross, get rid of one of them. Two feasts of St. Michael, get rid of one of them. Uh, three feasts of St. Peter, get, get rid of one of them. You see. Hmm. Uh Two feasts of St. Peter's chair, get rid of one of them, and so on. And then uh, John dies. We get uh, dear old um, Paul VI, and Bonini just, you know, lets it all hang out in the spirit of the 60s. Hmm. You know, because the moon was in the seventh house, Jupiter aligned with Mars, and love reigned throughout the planets, or... Uh, Peace reigned throughout the planets. Love steered the stars. Because it was the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So, on an, an octave, is that the eight days preceding the feast day? Uh, or, or is that... Following. Oh, following. Excuse eight me. days following. So, but that doesn't include That's the actual I, feast day, does it? Um, yes, it does. Oh, it does. The, the, okay. the feast is the first day of the octave. I was okay. I was curious if there could be some sort of integration between an octave and a novena, um, but that uh, makes it weird. Well, only in the sense only in the sense that novenas um, tend to be tend to be purely private devotions. Yeah. Whereas octaves are liturgical. Right, but you know if. I notice with prayer life, the more you can attach structure to something, the more at least oh, the better, me, it the better works. it is. So yeah. if, if like I can attach a novena to an octave, that you know that that's sort of um, a trigger or a catalyst to do that. Well, I mean, you know? one thing you could always do is uh, when you're doing a novena to anybody or to anything, like the precious blood or the sacred heart. Nothing stops you from starting the novena on the actual feast day. Mm. And well, then I mean, that's true. Doing, or, yeah. or contrary-wise, having the novena end on the feast day. So in other words, uh, you start a novena nine days before a given feast, so the feast is the ninth day. That requires math and forward thinking, though. I'm sorry about that. You know, that's hard. I know, I know. No, but but, uh, but that that is the ideal. I know for obviously for um, the big one is the uh, total consecration where you do that. But that's longer. thirty days. Yeah, yeah. 
So, um, well, it's 33 days, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, one other caveat, um, you mentioned, uh, Bonini, um, I did. Ange- Anibale. Anibale. So, uh, in 2018, Angelico Press actually came out with a book about him. Yeah. Um, Seems to be objective. Um, it says, uh, learn more about a man whose work continues to be either applauded or maligned by observers around the world. So, you know, they're, you know, it seems like it's an honest look at him. Um, My dad's rather caustic comment when the new mass came in was that Hannibal had conquered Rome at last. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. A question from Tampa Tobacconist. So he says, uh, did Charles ever watch the show Kings on NBC? Uh, Season one in 2009. The show retold the biblical narrative of King David, but said it in the modern day. While it had its problems, the show was generally pro-monarchy. Could Charles recommend any pro-monarchy television programs other than Don Vincenzo's beloved Hallmark Channel movies. Yes. Well, not really. Um, we talked about the pris- or, um, um, the Walking Dead. Yeah. And their presentation of the kingdom as being rather sympathetic, actually. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I can't think. It's certainly not Game of Thrones. Ha, 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 ha. Right. Um, of course, Game of Thrones, nothing was sympathetic. Yeah. Uh, I can't really think of any television program like that. I mean, The Crown, I suppose. Although I only watched the first, uh, the first, uh, season. Um, I feel mind like there's, you, there's got to be hmm? something out there. Um, well, mind years years ago, PBS had some English specials like uh, Edward and Mrs. Simpson. I, I mean, so we we I've been talking about it a lot since I just went through it, but uh, I would say Downton, right? Like, oh yeah, Downton Abbey, sure. So that's a big one. I mean, even in the movie, the um, the entire uh, premise is they're preparing for the king. Yeah. Right. So that that's hugely. And of course, uh, the the uh, the the people in the royal entourage who are a problem are not the king and his courtiers. They're the yeah. servants. Yeah. Who are pushy and nasty. Yeah. And uh, the Downton servants, uh, ten, uh, they outwit them. And Mr. Carson is is blatantly and hugely uh, hugely monarchist. Um, he, yeah. I've quoted him as saying. Um, Monarchy is the lifeblood of Europe. No, well, it certainly is, actually, even now. Because, you know, it's funny. I remember, not to bring up an unpleasant uh, subject, but I remember being in Italy for the um, uh, beatification of Emperor Carl. And one of the things I found there was that very few of the people, of the Italians I spoke to, could name their president. But they all knew whether whether they were for the monarchy or against it. They all knew the name of the heir to the throne. 
Wow. Huh. And I, I thought that was very interesting. I mean, it, and the funny thing was that, um, uh, I don't know if I've told the story on the air before, but at one point, uh, after the actual day of uh, the emperor's beatification, the second day, there was a private or public audience, rather, for the pilgrims who had come for it uh, at the Nervi, the audience hall. Um, and the pilgrims, the, the Emperor Carl devotees, of whom I was one, uh, were ushered in, and we had a sort of prayer of thanksgiving service with the Pope. And the Archduke Otto was there, and a bunch of other royals were there. Um, and then all of us who'd come from all over the world to honor him were there too. So afterwards, uh, we went to lunch. Brother uh, Mary and myself went to lunch at uh, uh, the Hotel Excelsior on the. Um, uh, gosh, I can't think of it. it's it's the, the main drag, and I can't think of it. Oh well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, we go to lunch at the Excelsior, and I noticed that uh, in the in the bar, not at the bar, but at a table across from us, was the heir to the throne, uh, Prince Victor Emmanuel. And I uh, we went out for lunch finally, and the um, the waiter. And I start talking, and I said, "Well, we've come to the, uh, we've come to the, uh, for the beatification." And he says, "Well, you know, Savoy is in the bar because, of course, the, it's the house of Savoy. Yeah, that's the royal family of Italy." So he said, he looks at me and he goes, "You know, Savoy is in the bar." And I said, "Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know." It's funny though that he knew, you know, he like knew. everybody somehow knows. Yeah. You wouldn't think that. See, and it had been illegal until less than a year before for Victor Emmanuel to set foot in this country. Wow. Because, you know, they were so sure that the Republic was popular that they made it a crime for a member of the royal family to be in the country. Well, because they were so sure of themselves. <sighs> I don't want to say that the revolutions, whether peaceful or otherwise, that bring monarchs to power are generally full of garbage. But certainly their leaders tend to be. Mm. And I'm not saying that anything, any movement led by a bunch of garbage-filled morons is a bad thing. Because that would be a value judgment. And I tend to shy away from those as a Californian. It's good. Because you see, everyone has the right to the best government money can buy. That's what I always say. And to the best, ju and to the best justice money can buy. <laughs> That's what I always say. Yes, I know. I know. And of course, you've never put that into practice. But let's just say... While in your family's employ, I've seen. I let me put this another way. Let's move on. Yes. All right. Thirteenth um, floor. Thirteenth floor. Warning! Warning! 
<laughs> All right. Um, question from Cal. Hey, Cal. Uh, Cal says, uh, All hail Vincenzo the Vivacious and Sir Charles the Chivalrous. I've recently begun attending a Byzantine divine liturgy every Sunday in place of my local Novus Ordo parish. Despite the fact that the commute is substantially farther, I have been drawn to the divine liturgy by the sense of mystery and tradition in the same manner that I was with the Latin Mass prior to the relocation of my traditionalist parish. Additionally, I must admit that Byzantine traditions and spirituality have begun to grow on me as well, and I am pondering whether or not to quote-unquote go east and switch to the Byzantine rite. However, this presents a dilemma for me, given that my ancestry is almost exclusively a mix of Sicilian, Bohemian, wow, that's a good mix, and Scots-Irish, nearly all of my Catholic patrimony is from the Latin Rite. Were I to go Byzantine, I have this nagging feeling that I would be betraying the Latin traditions of my ancestors. Is Charles of the opinion that this is a valid reservation of mine, or is this merely a traditionalist neurosis that I have? Thank you both, and God bless. Wow, great question. It is a great question, and I'll tell you, the first time that the authorities in Rome tried to suppress the uh, traditional mass, same thing happened. A lot of people went Eastern Rite. Yeah. Uh, my friend Gary Potter, whom you remember, he had never actually been to a Tridentine Mass when he converted. And he and his wife, after dipping into the Novo Soto, went Byzantine for years. It was only after the Tridentine Mass became available, became legal, that he started going to it. So yeah. my answer is several fold. Firstly, uh, I think you're right about the trad neurosis. You know, you you have a right under canon law, not that anybody cares about that, but you have a right to truly Catholic worship, truly Catholic catechesis. As a member of the faithful, you have that right. Uh, the fact that that right is being abused and stepped upon doesn't signify any more than Al Capone making law in Chicago a mockery. In other words, just because Al Capone may own City Hall doesn't change the fact that law is still valid. It does make using the law a little bit tricky, but you must never forget that. Abuse of the law does not void the law. How anyway? Uh, also remember that you don't have to switch rights to become a regular attendee at a Byzantine parish or whatever it is, Maronite or copped or whatever you're going to. You don't have to switch rights unless there are issues involved of marriage and baptism and things like that. In which case, you might very well have to take this under under advisement. But don't forget, too, that a lot of your Sicilian ancestors were probably uh, Byzantine right themselves because there's a very strong element of that in Sicily and also in the rest of southern Italy. Um, 
as far as the Czechs go, well, they were first evangelized by Cyril and Methodius anyway. So then St. Adelbert came along and made good Latins out of them. Um, so I, I really wouldn't worry on ethnic uh, grounds. I, I, I would simply say it's a question of getting the sacraments where you feel the most comfortable. Um, the hierarchy of the church have no right to chase us from pillar to post. They have the power to, but they don't have the right to. And I realize that seems in the immediate uh, a distinction without a difference, but it will mean something in the future, the way it did under Benedict. Because Pope Benedict knew that what had been done was wrong and unjust, and he made that clear. And it didn't, it didn't cease to be wrong and unjust just because the new man decides to try it again. Um, again, it's unfortunate. But we've had parallel occurrences in the history of the church before, and doubtless, if we live long enough, that'll happen again. I have no doubt, ladies and gentlemen, that in 10 or 20 or 50 years, two things will come out of this adventure that we're living through now. One, just as Vatican I defined the extent of the office of the Pope's powers, one day the limits will be defined. And probably this will be forced upon us because of what's going on now. Secondly, the exact shape and size and infallibility and degrees thereof of the ordinary magisterium will probably be defined, I would guess. Because as it stands, nobody knows what the ordinary magisterium is or where it ends or where it picks up. Everybody has a different story. So one day, I think that too will be nailed down. So if it makes you feel any better, you could feel like someone living during the Arian heresy or the Nestorian heresy or the Monophysite heresy. Uh, as St. Paul tells us, heresies must come that the truth be known. But woe to someone like Pope Honorius or to or Pope Stephen VI or Pope Sergius III who make it necessary. Hmm. His go east comment made me think of Horace Greeley's go west young man. Uh. Well, I, you know, one, one of the great things about dwelling here on my island of dark academia is that uh, we have parity of esteem between the Byzantine and Latin rites, which is why, I mean, uh, had I not been doing the show tonight, I would have gone up to Vienna for the Tridentine Mass, in addition, you say. And that's one of the great, the great things that uh, when you can have the Byzantine and the Tridentine in the same day. Hmm. Always a thrill for me. That's interesting. All right. Uh, question from Philip, who says, uh, how often do you have occasion to wear a ceremonial sash? Do you think that sashes merit a revival? How would a wider adoption of the practice of sash wearing, if not sashaying, affect social mores? Well, I don't belong, despite being accused of being phaleristic, I uh, do not have uh, an order of knighthood that has a sash. 
but I am a Knight of Columbus and a Knight of Peter Claver, and we have sashes. But here in Austria, I don't do anything with the Knights of Columbus or the Knights of Peter Claver. When I was back home, uh, usually about once a month, sometimes twice a month, if both of them were doing it. Uh, if the with the I was fourth degree Knights of Columbus, and they have a, a sash that uh, they wear inside the dinner jacket. And then the uh, Knights of Peter Claver have a sash that were outside on the suit. Mm. Um, the um, I think sashes are wonderful. I mean, being French Canadian, you know, a sash around the waist used to be part of our folk garb. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny because it feel it almost feels like we're afraid to stand out with anything now. It's like the, the Knights of Columbus, um, you know, change of the uniform where, you know, they got rid of the quote unquote Captain Crunch hat and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So they can look like the Royal Canadian Legion. Yeah. That's great. But I, I feel like there's sort of the same feeling of, of sash wearing, which I feel like is. Uh, well, it's, it's weenieism. You know, right. you want to be a weenie? Oh, oh! What if, what if I stand out? I'm a weenie. I don't want to stand out. You know what happens to weenies, though? What? They end up in buns with relish, ketchup, and mustard. But you know, one of my fellow knights, he said it so well about the old uniform is that it announces itself. Yeah. And I feel like that's what sashes do too, and what they should do. And particularly if you look at sort of pop culture, celebrity type stuff, the whole thing is to stand out. That's their job. They do it in arguably immoral ways in terms of modesty, but you should be peacocking, right? That That's yeah, the term, I, I peacocking. So. I think so. And, and one of the one of the many reasons I am proud of the Knights of Peter Claver is that they have kept their uniform and their ceremonies intact, mm. which is something the Knights of Columbus have failed to do, sadly. But in, in days of not so long ago, there was nothing more impressive at a wedding or, or a funeral or a, a procession, any kind of church ceremony, than the Knights in their uniforms with their drawn swords. Mm. The first to go in a lot of places with the drawn swords, because for many of the clerical people, the drawn swords were a toxic masculinity. Yeah. I would think a grinder account would be toxic masculinity, really. All right. Okay. Uh, can we move on to the next question? Ah, uh, yes. All right. Final question today Ooh. from Noble Cobra. How noble is my cobra? I don't know. Apparently. I don't know. Um, oh, that's a, a presumption. That's a vague judgment. Noble cobra. I don't know. It sounds like a G.I. Joe villain. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, oh, the cobra come talk about not working the room nicely. That's awful. <laughs> sounds like a G.I. Joe villain. You know, who's next? Dr. No? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, all right. Um, so he says, the dread sovereign of noble Cobra Publishing to the distinguished Don Vincenzo and the illustrious Charles Coulomb. Greetings. I love that title, Dread Sovereign. I want to be the Dread Sovereign. Oh, our Dread Sovereign, King Charles III. I am a longtime listener and first would like to thank you both for helping to reinforce my monarchical views, as well as providing first-class entertainment in disheartening times. We try. I have a question for Charles. In the Father's Day episode, you mentioned that your father had done work with Walt Disney near the end of the latter's life. As someone who has a strong interest in the Uncle Walt, or in Uncle Walt, to the point of authoring a book on his films, I'd be curious to know what your father thought of him and what your own opinion is of him and his work. Thank you both for your services to the cause of Christ, comedy, and chivalry. Mm. Well, my dad liked him. Uh, I mean, he only spoke to him a few times uh, because dad's job was pretty much uh, confined to designing the water systems for Pirates of the Caribbean um, in Disneyland. And that's what he worked on. But he met him a few times. And dad, dad had a certain amount of similarity with Uncle Walt in the sense that uh, Walt Disney, there were two different things going on with him at once. On the one hand, he was definitely a Midwestern American of his era who had had big dreams, which could not be fulfilled in the Midwest. So he came out to Southern California and he made them live, which was something a lot of people did, you know, from Ronald Reagan to Hubert Eaton. But, um, if you look at where his interests were, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, New Orleans Square, Frontierland, uh, Adventureland with the jungle, uh, Main Street USA, which was his idea of the Midwest of his childhood, Tomorrowland. I mean, all of these things. This is these are the whole, and Fantasyland, of course, definitely, and his retelling of so many wonderful European stories and uh, so many stories of early America and so on. This was a romantic. You know, we always watched when I was growing up. And apparently, I mean, I don't remember it, but it predates my memory. Uh, when we were back in New York, uh, I didn't really, I don't remember this at all, but apparently in New York is over in, as in California, every Sunday night we watched the Disney movie. I mean, that was, that was sacrosanct. We'd always watch that. And they were wonderful. Uh, na- nature films, Zorro, uh, just a ton of Blackbeard's ghost, a ton of, of, of different films, uh, the scarecrow, you know, the, the, the scarecrow of Romney Marsh, uh, just from all over the world, Jules Verne, uh, you name it. Uncle Walt took it. Mary Poppins. He had this, this, this vast interest in things, but a very romantic look at it. And also obviously it was very practical. It couldn't have made it come to life, but my father, 
I think, very much responded to that. To that width of storytelling, if that makes sense. Uh, Walt Disney's mind was equally at home in Europe as in America, in the future as in the past as in the present. Um, and my dad was very much like that. All over the map, as you might say. And I think he really responded to that. Um, Disney, you know, is uh, uh, often accused of cheapening things and this and that, which there's a sense in which that's true. I mean, obviously, his Pinocchio is not the novel. His Bambi is certainly not the novel. Uh, and his renderings of folklore, they render it into his vision and nobody else's. So, I mean, those sorts of, of, of arguments that are made are very true. But by the same token, uh, the vast majority of people, even then, were beginning not to read. And for how many people would Peter Pan, the Swiss family Robinson, Robin Hood, uh, Uncle Ramus, if you're, if you're allowed to watch the Forbidden Song of the South, you know, if you haven't been beaten to a pulp by the counselors. Um, where would most moderns today ever be introduced to these things? I mean, we don't even have classics illustrated comic books anymore. Nobody knows nothing. So you have this sort of interesting setup where Disney, you could say, and, and not, not perhaps entirely wrongly, that he, he lowered the tone of these things, he brought them down to the common man, and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, but today the common man isn't going to get them from anywhere else. I mean, don't get me wrong, if you've seen Mary Poppins, the movie, you really should read the books. If you've seen Song of the South, yeah, read the books. If you've seen The Sword in the Stone, yeah, read the book. Absolutely. And I'd say the same thing about Classics Illustrated comic books, which were, again, really, really good in terms of giving you some idea of the story, but not a substitute for the novel. You really should read this stuff if you possibly can. The Swiss Family Robinson. You know, there's another one. Um, in Search of the Castaways, Jules Verne, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. All of these sorts of things, again, you have, you're, you're stuck in that irony, in that, yeah, maybe cheapen them, but we wouldn't be thinking of them at all today if it weren't for his dealing with them. And the other thing about Walt Disney, for me personally, is that he is like Norman Rockwell, like Irving Berlin, like the Knights of Columbus, like the Boy Scouts, like the American Legion. He is an integral part of the world I grew up in, the world I was born into. And so even though Disney has morphed into crap, today, the way so many of these other things I've mentioned have morphed. I can't help but look back to what they were with a lot of nostalgia.
you know. I mean, I've made a lot of fun earlier today about the uh, the counterculture and all that. One of the reasons I resent it is because, and again, this is not entirely fair, but as I was experiencing these things, it seemed to me that the things I loved were being replaced by it, being destroyed by it. And again, that's not entirely fair. You know, you asked me if there was anything good to come out of the counterculture. There were a few things. Not a lot, but there were a few. The problem is that even those good things were based upon a certain framework of society, which then entirely collapsed. And the thing to bear in mind, too, is that the 60s, as we think of them, and I mean, the Smothers Brothers, that's something else I liked very much from the 60s. And a lot of the situation comedies, uh, Bewitched and Green Acres and all that, were great. A lot I could point to. In fact, up until All in the Family in 72, in some ways, the 60s were a golden age of television. Uh, Carol Burnett, The Hollywood Palace, uh, all sorts of variety shows, The Dean Martin Roasts. <laughs> These uh, these were great things, but depended upon a set of values on a certain framework, which not in the 60s, but in the 70s would collapse. And the values, so-called, of the counterculture became the values of society. In other words, the, the rebels and the, the outsiders became the determining factor for the majority. So shacking up became the norm. Uh, I mean, today when people are talking about somebody's first girlfriend, they mean it's first shack up. Now, what do you do with a civilization like that? Because I guarantee you, you have two or three or four shack-ups under your belt. The chances of you being a successful husband or wife are minimal, let alone husband and father. Um, you know, the, the, I, I was seeing something rather pathetic on Twitter the other day. This uh, girl was recounting how she was talking to another fr a friend of hers, another girl, about this feeling of nameless dread that she has. And her friend says, well, you've got to understand that we're the first generation of women who didn't expect to, to build homes. And she said it like that was a good thing. That nameless dread is doubtless well-deserved, but not a good thing to have. Um, you know, the traditional gender roles don't apply anymore. Uh, yeah, they do. They sure do. Because, you see, you can't beget children any other way. And unless you beget children, you die. I don't know how, how much more basic it gets than that. Um, the there are other ways there are other no there aren't nothing that's going to last and the sooner whatever passes for what's in charge get that through their little pointed heads 
the sooner things may get better. But whether they do or they don't, on behalf, on behalf of the benighted creatures that own us, it's up to us as individuals to try to live our lives as sane people and not as idiots. Um, you know, if you're a guy or a gal and you're inclined that way, you've got to think seriously once you reach a certain age of what it would take to get married and of what it would be like being married. You know, if you're if you're if your skills, your manners, your appearance aren't up to it, well, then you've got to do something about that. You know, I, I I've got to say something to you, uh, although this is really not apropos of anything. But young men, a lot of you guys have got to do something about your grooming. You know, you won't attract ladies if you're fragrant, believe it or not. And there are a lot of people today who live in their heads. Same is true for young ladies as well. They live in their heads. Um, and, on, and online. And in games. You know, I'm not saying that these things are terrible or awful. Quite the contrary. Uh, they can open up whole new worlds of, of interest and amusement. That's fine. But there's a real world. And you have to take pride and precedence in that real world. Um, if you feel you need to get married, that's great, but understand you're better off finding someone in the real world. So think about your appearance. Think about modulating your tone, for instance. One thing I've noticed with a lot of young people today, uh, is that they apparently are not really used to speaking to people. And they either speak in a monotone, or they're constantly loud all the time like this, or they go down to vocal fry, or some bizarre combination of the three. Well, I really, not, not being in that position myself, I don't know how you overcome that, except maybe making a point of speaking to other people. And if you don't like the way they sound, then try not to sound that way yourself. I mean, I don't know. I really don't. But try to invest in the real world. And I know this sounds funny coming from a podcaster, but there is a world out there, ladies and gentlemen. Get to know it. You know, one of the things about the Disney films was just that. It's like, as with the scouts and a lot of other things we had in those days, they encouraged you to get out and look at nature. Look at architecture. Go to museums, for heaven's sake. I mean, go to a library. It's not even just a question of reading books, which you could do online, I know. But so often, not everywhere, but so often, Going into a library is in itself an architectural adventure. There were many, many people I knew when I was at beautiful Virgil Junior High for whom a trip to the Central Library in downtown L.A. was about the only view of really beautiful architecture they ever got. So expand your horizons, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Uncle Walt was all about, actually. 
he, um, although of course he was keen on making money, uh, without a doubt, and he made a lot of it. Uh, even he would have told you that his movies were only a jumping off spot, like Wikipedia, for going further. Uh, if you like the movie, read the book. I believe he said that somewhere or other. And I'm sure he would say, if you like the documentary, go see the Grand Canyon. Go see the Redwoods. Go see Big Sur. You think they're beautiful? Great. Leave the house. Go go stare at them. I, um, I say this because, you know, in the past few years, I've gotten to know a lot of young people. And not just here, but online and around. And... You cannot help, ladies and gentlemen, the world you were born into or the culture that my generation have so thoughtfully provided for you. But you can't help what you do with it. You can't help how you handle it, how you react to it. It's like our friend earlier who was wondering, uh, you know, is it trad neurosis to go to a, a Byzantine liturgy? No, of course not. Go out, go see some things. See if you, depending on what's available, where you are, go see the Maronites, go see the Ordinaria. Go to uh, perpetual adoration somewhere outside your parish, especially if your parish doesn't have it. Makes it easier. Go do these things. Go to ethnic festivals. Go to the Renaissance Fair. Go, 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 go. Do. Because I guarantee you, two things will happen. One, you'll learn a lot more. And two, it'll actually give a certain frame of reference to your safe spot with the computer. It'll make what you see on the computer all the more real, all the more enjoyable. Sorry about getting on the soapbox, ladies and gentlemen, but it has been on my mind for a while. And, you know, I, I really, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate the feedback we've gotten back through the past few years, the, uh, the joy, and I can say that honestly, the joy of having been able to share with you folks something of what, uh, we've been given. You know, I, I, I wish I could tell you that I sat around and came up with all this stuff on my own, but of course it isn't true. I had a father and mentors and so on, and they gave me a lot. And um, if I've been able to give any of the best of it to any of you, it's, well, that's why, why it was given to me. And I cannot... I cannot tell you how well I wish you all, how badly I hope that you and live to see a much better world than the one that I will probably close my eyes in. 
I hope you'll see a world that will be far better than the one I was born into, which I remember so fondly, because it had its problems, not least of which was the fact that it morphed into what you got now. <laughs> that didn't happen by magic. So anyway, on a, on a brighter note, this was the last of the questions. Yes, it is, but you... Can I talk? You know, I, I would love to yes, expand on some of the things. You know, you're on a roll. Please. I didn't want to interrupt you because you're on a roll, and it was like, you know, it's one of those special Charles moments, right? But you touch on some things that are so good. Um, we'll touch on them right after uh, channel identification. Off the menu, now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade channel. Talk radio the way it should be. Crusadechannel.com. Sorry, I that's say, right. I have to say that, or Mike Church is going to beat me up. All right, um, that's that's <laughs> right, Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> There's some scary people out there. It's like that that shark meme where it's like Crusade Channels swallowing off the menu, and then and then Big Almonds swallowing See, Crusade Channel. There's a lot of scary people out there, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just doing what I'm told. All right. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you don't want to know. <laughs> that, you know that's, I would love to see that as a bumper sticker. There's a lot of scary people out there. I'm just doing what I'm told. <laughs> I, I think that's beautiful. I'm just doing what I'm told, ladies and gentlemen. It, it's too scary. I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I, I, I'm just here begging for my life. Don't worry about me. <laughs> oh gosh! All uh, right. So the two things. I mean, you touched on so much. Um, I mean, so the two things. I think the one thing that probably resounded with a lot of people uh, is the nameless dread thing. I don't have a nameless dread, but I've seen people silently wear it. And in my humble opinion, the nameless dread that they wear is a function of bad choices that are a result of a bad philosophy. Their philosophy, their, their worldview, their philosophy doesn't add up. But they're not putting the time in to double check the math on it. And they know it doesn't add up, and that's resulting in the nameless dread. This, you know, things like, you know, I, I can see that underneath various people, non Catholics people, and it's horrible. I want to, like, you know, you just want to save them because they're like child, they're like children, right? Where it's like one is like, well, you know, uh, life is meaningless. And anybody could die at any moment. You know, COVID could get you. So we have to mask up and we have to do all the things and inject all the stuff in us. And Right? Like, they don't actually say that. But that's the philosophy underneath is the belief. The lack of belief in God. And the lack of belief in purpose. And the lack of belief that there is, that God's not out to lunch to your salvation. And the story of you. And because they don't have that, they're they're an absolute mess, and they carry with them this nameless dread. 
And of course, there's the unsee and unseeable fear of hell there. And, and that, that that's why you have all this, um, you know, all these studies of all these, the mental problems in the young people, this depression, all this, you know, thought to suicide, all this. And that's because it's because we're not taught philosophy, honestly, in anywhere. Honestly, we're, we're not taught a proper philosophy. Um, well, you know, much as I hate to cite a um, a book only easily available from Tumblr House, but uh, Gold, Frankincense, and Myrrh, right. Ralph Adams Scram, right. goes into this very issue and the three things that a healthy society needs, which is a sane philosophy, a sacramental view of life, yeah. and... Uh, a healthy monastic life. Yeah. Because it's in the monasteries that, uh, believe it or not, in a real sense, sanity comes. Yeah. Uh, mind you, it doesn't have to. You can get a lot of nutty stuff out of them. But when they're when they're healthy, they're very, they're very good. And, of course, the, it, it also, it's, I have to say just now, the Nameless Dread would be a great name for a rock band. <laughs> it would be. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Big sister and the nameless dread. <laughs> the um, but you know, so y- we've been talking about. I mean, it, it's a theme that hits home with both you and me a lot, oh. which is uh, the lack of socialization that oh. people are undergoing, and I. It's close with me because I've been a victim of it, right? Like, just be in front of the computer and play video games and. You know, it's honestly the devil wants you in a box and just nervous and this and that. And um, so what I wanted to touch on is that I'm I'm actually grateful um, that it's not as bad in the United States as it is in other places of the world. I was watching um, just randomly browsing YouTube and. Um, I watched a couple documentaries on the Hikomori in Japan. Oh, yeah. Which are, you know, it's a class of people. I don't know if it's a class of people, but it's an in, it's an increasing number of, of people who are shut-ins in the Japanese society. It's, I think the number is like a million now, but it's going to project it to go to 10 million. Self-imposed shut-ins. Se- self-imposed shut-ins. But, you know... There, there, there's so much in the, the, some of these these different Japan documentaries that I'm seeing, where, what in my opinion, what I'm seeing is a country with no Christian influence, no Christian um, backstop, if you will, and I see the powers that be have completely weaponized people's vices against themselves. And I see straight up slavery. It's it's slavery, but it's non-productive slavery. Yeah. And, and the Japanese government complain, and they're one of the very few governments that are honest in this area. They complain about the uh, demographic implosion in Japan. Yeah. But what do you expect is going to happen? Now, to be fair to the Japanese, of course, after having the, the stuffings kicked out of them in World War II, we, we, and I, we, I mean the, the Americans, the United States, we took away a lot of their traditional anchorage 
and didn't give them much in return. We certainly didn't give them Christianity. Uh, although I, I remember the very, very funny story. The first Christmas after in 1940, Christmas 1945, after the war was over, the occupation forces were in Tokyo. And the Japanese, they've always had an eye to making a dime or two. So the surviving or revived or reopened department stores in Tokyo figured they could make a killing off the occupation forces at Christmas. But they didn't really understand what Christmas was about. All they knew was that department stores around the world make a lot of money at Christmas. And they've got this fellow Santa Claus, and it's got something to do with Christianity. That was all they knew. So one of the biggest department stores in Tokyo put up for Christmas Santa Claus on a cross. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Great jumping Santa Claus on a cross. And so the, uh, the occupation authorities had to explain very gently, very diplomatically, that actually this was very offensive and was not what, uh, and was not what we do for Christmas. So beware of Santa Claus on the cross, ladies and gentlemen. It's just not a good look. <laughs> uh, but the Japanese, they are where we're, where all of us are headed. They're the, the, yeah. the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. Yeah. And it's one reason why it is that they're uh, so great with robot technology is that they don't really allow much immigration. But they've got a very low birth rate, so they've got a, a rapidly aging population. Well, what do you do with that? You don't have that as much cheap labor, i.e. young people, as you would need. So robots, robots, robots. But the problem with robots, of course, is they can't pay taxes. You know, they don't generate income. Right. So stay a prayer for the conversion of Japan, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, absolutely, because... We're headed there, as Charles said. The, the part of the just the one aspect, just another aspect that might resonate with people. I being from California it resonates with me, which is just sort of the problem in terms of a job, making a living, and life costs. You know where to stay, and these people more and more. What's happening is so. I guess there is. A very a, a, I guess the plurality of of the population is um, salary men, which is full time jobs. But it sounds like it basically basically works you to death. I mean, it's super serious. Um, the culture sounds horrible, but um, so when you don't want to do that anymore, you know, you get sort of part time work, temporary work. But the problem with that is you can't make ends meet anymore. And so when that happens, what people are doing more and more is um, they're living in internet cafes, I guess. And the internet cafes in Japan, I guess, apparently, it's they're all these little booths. You know, it's kind of cubicles, you know, isolated yeah. rooms, uh, basically with a computer screen. And they sleep there. I guess there's facilities for toiletries and and other stuff and food and stuff and that's the existence that they live in and that they kind of have to deal with 
is you're living in a box, literally. Let's not go that way let's, ourselves, ladies and gentlemen. Let's not go that way. But uh, California's headed that way really rapidly. I feel like I'm going to have to be mind, a rat off a ship. I wouldn't mind having Governor Newsom live in a Japanese internet cafe. I wouldn't either. He'd be good there. Either. He could keep his mouth shut and just work. But thankfully, thing- it's it's just California, and I feel like the fact that there are different states and I I just feel like we have to get out of here soon. I I just can't help but feel that way because things are going from bad to worse really rapidly economically um, in a lot of different ways. I won't go into it, but um, yeah, I don't know. The world's changing. Well, I I will say this too, ladies and gentlemen. If you're a young person, especially a young man, and you're considering what you're going to do for your education, if you don't have a really, really, really academic bent, uh, don't be afraid to consider a really useful trade. Yeah. Whether it be plumbing or electricity, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Well, that's what's happening in California, Charles. (laughs) They're... They're promoting conservation and all of, you know, um, solar power and um, these sort of skills because everything's falling apart. Like you can't count on the electricity to always come in. Um, Everything just so expensive. There's this desire, at least in me, to just develop all of these skills, you know. Well, they're very very important skills. And I can tell you that if you go into them professionally – You'll never want for a living, and that, ladies and gentlemen, can uh, contribute mightily to being a father, Mm. to say nothing of being a husband. So think about it. And the same with, you know, I I wish I had a a prepackaged answer for everybody. I don't. But what I do know is that just as our, your your great-grandparents, my grandparents, got through the depression and world war two and world war one as my parents got through world war one world war two your grandparents or great grandparents i guess for some of you guys i'm your grandparents generation um and just as we got through the enormous prosperity of the 50s and 60s wait a minute but that doesn't really match the others does it no well never mind um but we did get through the great uh, the great economic crises of the 70s. Inflation and the oil crisis and all that stuff. So I have no doubt, one way or the other, somehow or other, we'll all, we'll all manage to make it through or not. But in the meantime, be of good cheer. Um, whatever you do, don't put Santa Claus on a cross. Great jumping Santa Claus on a cross. Good advice. I could see I could see some old characters saying that. You know, you say, uh, well, Governor Newsom's gonna run for the seventeenth time. Ha! Huh. Well, Santa Claus on a cross. Really? All right. Um, it's been a long episode. Wait, uh, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What is it if it's Monday? Well, as I said, I work best alone without a net. Hold on. Um, it's off the menu. 
Well, what about the soul you save? I think that recent studies have shown that it may well be your own. Hmm. See you next time, everyone. God bless you all. Take care. Ciao.